I want to thank you all for coming out on this Friday evening. I was thinking as we were worshiping that right around this time, 2,000 years ago, on that Friday night, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were racing against time to get the body of Jesus down from the cross and to wrap the body as best they could and to lay it in the new tomb before Shabbat would begin. Our coming out here doesn't seem like a whole lot of effort as compared to what Jesus did. I want you to hear the story again from John's perspective. Beginning in John 19, verse 14, it says, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Well, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. And the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's not just another service for us. Not just another time to sing songs and open the Bible. This is a a day of holy remembrance. It's a time we've chosen, Lord, to come here and to honor You and to praise You and to glory in Your name, Lord Jesus. And we are able to come here and to talk to You because You did not stay dead in the tomb. But You rose and You offer new life to everyone who believes in You. But the path to that new offering of eternal life 
Lord Jesus, You know was a bloody path indeed. It was a brutal path, Lord, by all physical accounts. But emotionally and spiritually, what You bore at Calvary for us, we will be thanking You for all eternity. You made that Friday so good. And we thank You. And we praise You. And we honor You. Lord, I pray that You would give us some clarification, if You would, some understanding tonight, some revelation as to why You did what You did and how You went about these things and what it means for us here. Give us ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying to the church tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. A shocking statement was made this week. Maybe you read this, maybe you heard this. According to atheist journalist Eugenio Scalfari, a friend of Pope Francis since 2014, which is an interesting friendship because he's an atheist and, well, Francis is the Pope. But apparently, according to this uh, author, this journalist, the Pope has rejected the biblical notion of a literal hell. And when asked about bad souls, the quote comes out of Italy's La Repubblica, which is Scalfari's publication. According to this, Scalfari asked Pope Francis, what happens to bad souls? And apparently Francis replied, they're not punished. Those who repent obtain the forgiveness of God and enter the rank of souls who contemplate Him. But those who do not repent and cannot therefore be forgiven disappear. There, there is no hell. There is the disappearance of sinful souls. So this from the, the Pope, which Catholic or not, that, re, that reverses 2,000 years of, of Catholic church tradition. Certainly it goes head to head with what the Bible teaches. Of course, the Catholic church is really working hard to walk this back and to try and fix what was said. They said, well, he wasn't speaking ex cathedra, which means under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you got two choices based on what the Pope apparently said. And I wasn't there, so I don't know. But what was reported, you have two choices here. You can get the forgiveness of sin and end up contemplating God eternally, which is kind of what we're doing already, right? Contemplate God eternally or disappear. Okay, those are the two choices. You can contemplate God eternally or disappear. The Bible tells us, I'm going to be in His presence. And I'm going to love Him. And I'm going to adore Him. And I'm going to be with Him. And it's not going to be like sitting with a harp on a cloud in a really tight halo. No, I'm going to be in the presence of God. But either way, if you listen to what Pope Francis said, that doesn't offer a whole lot of hope. Contemplating eternally or disappearing. What's the point? Now listen, for those who would reject a literal eternal hell, and I'm really not here tonight to to argue this point, but I have to tell you a couple of things. If there is no hell, then you have to ask the question, and Pat Buchanan asked it this morning in an article in the newspaper as well. He said, why did Jesus have to die? What is He saving us from? If it's contemplation or disappearance, what's the big deal Why did Jesus go to the cross? And I want to give you the answer tonight in one word. It's a word that's used four times in the Scriptures. 
I'll let the Apostle John explain. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is, here's the word, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 4.10. John repeats this. He says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now you may think, Good Friday service, and we're talking theological terms like propitiation? Can't we just tell the old story and be done with it? The old story is about propitiation. We must have propitiation. And I'll tell you, without the death of Christ, there is no propitiation. Why does that matter? Again, my purpose is not not to argue for an eternal hell about which the Bible is unequivocal. Read Revelation chapter 20. Go verses 10 through 15. It makes the eternality of the lake of fire infinitely clear. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 25, 41, He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That comment, just that verse right there, tells us three things. First off, it gives us the fact of an eternal hell. The eternal fire, Jesus called it. Secondly, it tells us that this fire, Jesus says, was formed for the devil and his angels. Thirdly, He tells us it will be the final destination of those who are cursed. The fact of an eternal hell formed for the devil and his angels, the final destination of those who are cursed. But there's one other thing to understand, and that is that mankind was not created for hell. So here's the good news for you tonight. You were not made to go to hell. God does not want you to go to hell. Hell is literal. Hell is eternal. Hell is actual. God didn't make it for you. Doesn't want you to go there. Doesn't want me to go there. But a curse came into the world by sin, and death by that curse. And if we remain in sin without propitiation... There is no alternative. So what is the hope that escapes the curse? How do we avoid this? Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so on that Good Friday, on the tree of Calvary, Jesus Christ bought our propitiation. He made propitiation for every last person who trusts in Him to be rescued from an eternal hell. It is truly as simple as that. And by the way, the rank and file of forgiven souls in heaven will not just sit around contemplating God. As I said before, we're not going to be contemplating, we're going to be worshiping. Better than that, we are the worship team. We're in the band. We're going to be screaming on guitars better than Luke ever could hope to play. It's going to be amazing. Jake even talked about this. If you were here on Wednesday night, he started talking about the difference between the Millennial Kingdom and what comes after. Revelation 21 and 22 that deals with a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, a fantastic existence. We can't hardly even fathom, but if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you get a picture of a pretty cool scene. And it's far more than just contemplation. Now, Hebrews 13, 
Listen in because this is where we learn what propitiation really means, how it works. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same. And you thought we were done. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And from a non-Jewish perspective, to read something like that in the Bible, you'd say, I don't get it, and, and what we tend to do is just go on to the next verse. Because I don't understand. Well, stop for a moment. And ask, why is he all of a sudden talking about food? Why in verse 9, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods? Why in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What in the world is he talking about? Listen, there was inherent in the sacrifices of the law of Moses, Torah law, there were sacrifices that the people were allowed to partake in were allowed to eat of. Sacrifices that even the high priest himself could eat. And God would take the fatty portions and the, and the, the liver and, and onions and, you know, the bad stuff. And he said, the good meat, it's for you. You know, the peace offering was a marvelous opportunity for a person to come and, and have a holy barbecue with the Lord. They'd offer up the ox, and then the meat would be given to the person, and part of the requirement was they had to eat it right there, in the presence of the Lord, while the rest was offered up to God. And so this sharing in the meat that was offered in the tabernacle or in the temple was an understood thing. But several weeks ago now, we discussed that there was an offering, an altar if you will, from which those who served the tabernacle had no right to eat. A specific offering you could not eat any of. And it was the sacrifice of atonement. Atonement. The sacrifice of atonement. The day of atonement. Yom Kippur. It was that time annually. You remember this? The high priest would go in. They would offer the sacrifice. He would take blood from the sacrifice and sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies. But the day of atonement was one sacrifice from which nobody could eat. In fact, what tended to happen is on Yom Kippur, he tells us in verse 11, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. The entire thing. They would sacrifice the animal, take the blood, and then the body and the hide and the flesh and the entrails and all the whole body was taken out and sacrificed outside the camp. Just as Jesus was crucified outside the camp, outside the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting, Catholics believe that the Church of the Holy Smoke, the Holy Sepulchre, <laughs> is the place where the crucifixion happened. I call it that because every time I've gone in there, it's the incense is so thick you can't even hardly see your hand in front of your face. But it was outside the city gate, and archaeologically and historically, it, it was to the west of the temple, Protestants tend to like the garden tomb. It's to the north of the temple, but also outside the city gates. Which one is it? We're not going to get into that tonight, although the offering was supposed to be given to the north, and the garden tomb is to the north. And I'm not saying that the garden tomb is the place, but I do believe the crucifixion was to the north. Outside the camp of Jerusalem, 
where Jesus was crucified just like the offering on Yom Kippur. And if you were here a few Wednesdays back, you remember we made this point. Oh, okay, so Yom Kippur is what he's talking about. Leviticus 16.27 says, The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Matthew 27, verse 31 says, After they mocked Jesus, they took the robe off Him, they put His garments back on Him, and they led Him away to crucify Him. And as they were coming out, literally implying outside the city, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear His cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, there they crucified Him. Outside the city. Just like... The offering for the Day of Atonement was given, burned up completely outside the camp. By the way, outside the city of Jerusalem, there to the north, is an ancient rock quarry. It's a rock quarry from which the rocks were cut and brought down for the temple, for Herod's temple, for Solomon's temple before that. A rock quarry, the place of the skull. And that quarry sits, even today, at the crossroads, if you will, of Jerusalem. There are roads, were roads, back in the first century that led to the north, to the west, and to the east. And on those roads, crucifixion happened. At that rock quarry, it was a place of execution by stoning. According to the Jewish law, stoning the heretics, stoning those who violated law, they would be stoned there at that rock quarry until Rome stripped the right of capital punishment. And when Rome did that, well, then Rome began its executions in the same place because, hey, it was a well-traveled highway by many of the Jews coming in and out of Jerusalem and a great place to set an example by crucifixion. So we believe it was in that place to the north. But either way, it was outside the city just like Yom Kippur. And that's impressive. The crucified Christ portraying atonement outside the camp at the crossroads of history, the atonement of the cross. But you know what? And this is what's bothered me, what had been bothering me since that Wednesday night study. That doesn't work. I mean, yeah, the implication in Leviticus 16.27 and outside the city and the Day of Atonement and Jesus making atonement and all that. I mean, you can piece these things together, but there's something that doesn't work. A problem that I could not get off my mind. You see, Yom Kippur, by nature, was temporary. They had to do it every year. Every year annually they came right back around and Yom Kippur again. Why? Because you had to atone for the people's sins. And furthermore, atonement itself is temporary. You know what the word atonement means? It means covering. So in essence, atonement is the covering over of sin. So if you're telling me that the cross was atoning for our sins, what you're saying is Jesus' blood just kind of covered my sin for a while. But my sin is still there. The sin of the people of Israel was still there. God just atoned. He, he, he put off for a while. Do you know that the word atonement is not used once in the entire New Testament? You can't find it. It's not there. Because we don't have atonement. Not anymore. Atonement that means covering, not cleansing. Atonement was a pause, a, a holding off of God's wrath for the short term. 
but not for the long run. And Paul addresses this. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, not an atonement, a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because, listen, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. That's atonement. God said to Israel, for now I'm going to look the other way. For now I'm not going to charge you with your sins. I'm going to cover it with the covering of the blood atonement of Yom Kippur. And then Paul says in Romans 3.26, for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the Day of Atonement looked forward to Jesus, covered the people until the coming of Messiah, but did not wash away sin. Propitiation does that. Atonement is not enough. Hebrews 2.17 tells us Jesus had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Get this, note this, propitiation is not a pause. It's eternal. Propitiation is not a Passover. It's forever. It's not just for now, it's for always. Propitiation, the word is halasmos in the Greek, and it literally is translated appeasement. Now get this, this is huge. What the Hebrew writer is talking about in Hebrews 13 is not atonement. So I am correcting now the teaching from three or four weeks ago. It is not atonement to which he's referring here when he says the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. It can't be atonement. Because Jesus didn't atone for our sins. He made propitiation for our sins. And that is not the atonement of the cross. It is the appeasement of the cross. Well, what needs appeasing? Very simply, God's wrath. God's wrath must be appeased. He is a perfect God. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God cannot abide unrighteousness because God is perfectly righteous. In Him is light, John tells us. And there is no darkness at all. He is so perfect that literally we cannot come into His presence if we have a spot, a speck of sin in our lives. One little lie. One little cheat. One moment of slipping up. One bad word. I mean, it doesn't have to be much. Anyone here have a flawless week last week? Anyone not get angry at someone at some point or think some thought or view some material or watch some movie or listen to some music and afterward go, ah, oh well. Shouldn't have done that, but oh well. With God, there's no such thing as oh well. He's perfect. And unless you are absolutely perfect, you can forget it. You have one option if you're not perfect. And we talked about that earlier. 
You've got to be perfect. Wrath must be a peace. Wrath against unrighteousness because to be in God's presence you must be perfectly righteous and atonement doesn't do it because atonement by nature suggests that the sin is still there. You cannot be atoned for and come into the presence of God. There is one more offering, however, of which no priest or offerer could eat. Another offering that was also burned up completely outside the camp. And the pastor has already described it. And it's in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18. Look back there. Hebrews 9, 18. He says, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one almost may say, all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed. Note that word, cleansed, with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. My friends, this is a sacrifice of cleansing. Cleansing is a big deal to God. I was asked a question before we went to Israel. Uh, it was brought to my attention that some think maybe the Temple Mount is not the Temple Mount. There's some videos on YouTube you can watch, and there's a guy who's come up with a new theory that, that perhaps you know 2,000 years of archaeology and, and, and study have been wrong, and, and it was actually in a different place, and the Temple Mount was just, the whole thing was the fortress of Antonia. It was just a garrison for Roman soldiers. So I went to Israel with this on my mind. And as we came into Jerusalem, I was thinking about it, and, and I talked with our, our guide and friend, Roni, about this, and we had some good long conversations about it. He said, Rick, the, the archaeologists are not going to be wrong, you know. No, the Temple Mount is where it is. And I'm like, okay, Roni thinks that. And I'm looking for evidence. We get to the Temple Mount. We begin to walk around. There's a huge stone, it looks like a big corner, and engraved upon that stone, which was toppled from the top of the Temple Mount, says to the place of the trumpeter, That's where the trumpeting of the silver trumpets was blown by those who, the priests who were calling for worship at the Temple Mount. That would not have been on a Roman garrison. So that was one clue. But there's a bigger one. Do you know around the Temple Mount, all around the southwest side, they have found over 50 mikvahs. A mikvah? Baptistries. Pools of cleansing. Because you did not go into the temple without first going into the mikvah. The mikvah, they would walk down into it and do full body immersion and then come back out as a symbol of cleansing before coming into the presence of God because cleansing is such a big deal. Now get this, propitiation, it's a sacrifice of cleansing. What he is talking about in Hebrews 13 is not atonement, it's propitiation and the difference is huge. He's talking about Not the sacrifice of Yom Kippur. He's talking about the sacrifice of the red heifer. Numbers chapter 19, listen to this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer. 
in which is no defect, and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle some of the blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, and its blood with its refuse shall all be burned. That's what the Hebrew writer is talking about. I'm absolutely convinced. And he goes on to say, The priest shall then take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. And they would literally make a mixture which they kept. And they would use this for purification. Whether it was the purification of the temple or the purification of a person who had come in contact with a dead body, they had to have this purification that came from the offering of the red heifer. Rick, what are you all excited about a red heifer for? Oh, just listen. (laughs) They burned the body of the red heifer out there. And note again what they threw into it. Cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet material. Why? Cedar. The wood of the cross. Hyssop, the branch on which sour wine was lifted up to the lips of Jesus on the cross. Scarlet, the color of blood. The sacrifice of the red heifer is a picture, was a picture, long ago of the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. Because it implied the same thing that Jesus would actually do. The red heifer implied purification, cleansing, propitiation. And Jesus bought it. Jesus did it. All of this was burned up in the wrath of God against sin. The wood of the cross, the hyssop, the scarlet, the picture of Jesus crucified at Calvary. And you might say, okay, what is this offering all about? Verse 9 of Numbers 19, Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. Now quickly, back in Hebrews 13, verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's not atonement, it's appeasement. It's not the atonement of Yom Kippur, it is the appeasement of propitiation, sanctification, purification. That's what happened at the cross. And without this, we could not hope to approach the Holy God. But because of the blood of Jesus, now suddenly, guess what? I'm pure. I know I don't look it. But I am pure. Spiritually whole before the Father. This is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 Is there any darkness in you? By your own behavior, by your own mentality, by your own actions. Any hint of darkness, you can't come into the presence of God. Unless you have propitiation. See, God again is perfect. First Timothy 6.16 He alone possesses immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Unapproachable! Can't come near Him unless you're perfect. And that's what Jesus did. He made you perfect. He says, look, you just come and put your faith in me. For I obtained exactly what you need. I bought 
your perfection, your sanctification, your purification at Calvary. And at the cross, God's righteous wrath was not put on pause. It was absolutely appeased by righteousness. That's what makes this Friday so good. That the righteousness of God is answered at Calvary. So that I can stand before Him. Well, let me put it this way. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Him. I have become the righteousness of God perfection by propitiation. And that's what happened at Calvary. Verse 13 then says, So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. Outside the camp. Yes, outside the camp. Get this, away from the temple. Away from the tabernacle. Meaning what? Meaning away from religion. And law. And ritual. And requirement. And trying to do what you must do to make yourself good enough. You will never be good enough. You will never be righteous enough or religious enough. These things, religion can only cover for a short time. You know what that's like. You go to church and you have a good worship service. You show up maybe at a Christmas Eve service and you walk out going, i got to have grace points for at least four or five days here. I mean, I gave up my Friday evening for the good Friday service. That's got to count for something, right? Only for a little while. That's religion. Get outside the camp. Go outside the camp where Jesus is. But go out, get this, bearing His reproach. What does that mean? It means that we hold up Jesus as our righteousness. We present Christ as our perfection. We bear His reproach before God. He looks at me and says, Well, Rick, what do you have to say for yourself? And I say, Jesus, the reproach of Christ, this is my hope, this is all I have, I stand behind Him, I bear His reproach, Because Jesus Christ is my one and only claim to eternal life. Verse 14, For we do not have a lasting city here. We are seeking the city which is to come. Let's pray together. Lord, as we process, not just the the, the story, there's so much more than Remembering the blood and the brutality and the ill treatment and the harshness of the cross. Lord, this is, this is recognizing what you did in the spiritual realm. What you offer the heart of anyone who comes to you and says, I need you. I believe in you. This perfection, this sanctification, It was blood-bought at Calvary. Oh, Jesus, we thank You. You did pay it all. And we owe it all to You. And we praise You on this evening with the depth of thanksgiving that is unending for what You did at Calvary. In Jesus' name, Amen.